0: Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS.
1: Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. An exciting announcement from Prodigy EMS and the Gathering of Eagles. For the first time ever, we've recorded the two-day conference That's right. The 2021 Gathering of Eagles Conference is now available online for your viewing pleasure. New registrants may purchase access on ProdigyEMS.com for $200. Existing Eagles attendees can view Eagles online as part of their in-person registration. Get all of the latest and greatest from the EMS Minds That Matter without leaving the comfort of your office, home, or rig. Visit www.prodigyems.com for more.
0: Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and joining me is my co-host...
1: Hilary Gates. I am the Director of Educational Strategy at Prodigy EMS, and I am pleased to be here today with a titan of the industry. His name is dr ray fowler <laughs> hi ray
2: does titan mean i need to lose some weight <laughs> i'm about to write a bariatric protocol should i have pictures of this myself bro, will be full of euphemisms
0: yeah, as well, we continue well,
2: everybody jolly jolly <laughs>
1: so here we are at the gathering of eagles it is the 22nd year ray of, of the gathering of eagles we're here in south florida in hollywood for the first time and you have been there since the beginning and we would love to hear the origin story of the Gathering of Eagles 22 years ago in 1998 in Pittsburgh. And more specifically, tell us about how proud you are of the education that the Eagles have provided to the nation and really the world over the years.
2: Well, it was Paul Pepe's idea to get together in February of 98. Uh, He was the medical director of the system up there, and he had some buds. I'd known Paul, gosh, that was was 98 then. I'd known Paul since uh, 19... Eighty-four. the day we met was the day we formed the working group to form the National Association of EMS Physicians, which, as I think many listening know, has now become the subspecialty organization for an actual specialty of medicine, namely EMS Medicine. So I've known Paul through a lot of thick and thin. And so Paul called um, Jeff Clausen of the Dispatch World and me to come up and put together a little program for the medics and others up in Pittsburgh. And so on a cold series of days, we got up and Had dinners together, had long meetings together. We made it up as we went. This was the day of actually having slides as opposed to PowerPoints, of course. What became clear was that this kind of in-person communication to an interested group by very informed people who also came with their own sets of challenges and problems was really a very high form of education and communication. I think it could probably be said that any educational activity, or certainly most, should present challenges at the conclusion or maybe throughout the educational program. If we're going to talk about cardiac arrest and the use of epinephrine at certain times, what's the real science on that, and which we've been doing now the last couple of days here, the science on the use of epinephrine and what really works, for example. So anyway, I think any educational program to conclude should present its own challenges. And so it was clear to Paul and me and Jeff and several of the others that we ought to continue this. And so we, with a couple of breaks over the years, we've now continued this for over a generation. We had our 20th about three years ago. I had challenge coins made, (laughs) you know, for this celebration. This is the information era without any doubt. Every normal person in the world, it seems just about, has a smartphone in their pocket. It, which means that they have access to every fact in the known universe at every moment of wakefulness. I carry a flip phone, as you know. So
1: you don't have access to that information. I'm a little but concerned about But I am surrounded
2: by, by computers. I, I, know, I know you're being cute. You know, in the hospital, I'm surrounded by computers. I'm sitting at home. My computer is on all day long. And I, I tend to answer things, emails, texts more quickly than most of my colleagues do. But I also choose not to have my mind turned out all the time of of touching a keyboard and so forth, because I see people that are their their moments seem paralyzed moment to moment. I don't think that that's good for the brain. I don't think it is. There's a thing about mindfulness that is something that's really quite real. And I, I think it's also quite distracting. And I think it is important for us to have focused moments of calm. For goodness sake, don't text and drive. For goodness sake, I don't think you really should be watching a movie and driving and so forth. But those opportunities are all out there. I think that one of the things that we've learned about the Eagles over the years, especially with the number one coming of PowerPoint, which to many of the young folks, you go, PowerPoint's always been here. No, it hasn't.
0: I have to, I, re- I to bust in and say, how do you think the current generation of eagles out there right now who are prepping their slides seconds before they go on in order to ensure we have up-to-the-minute information would cope with having to get a set of glass slides ready to
2: slot into the projector a few weeks ahead? How would they cope with that? Well, I think part oh, of And we that. love them, by the way. That's I just know you do. Yes. Yeah, I think part of anything is coping, and we certainly did that. I made my own slides uh, using Ektachrome in a hobby kit that you could take the slides develop them in the hobby kit in the sink and actually start to finish you would have your slides ready to go in less than an hour and then when early on harvard graphics and then the early powerpoint became available that we could really be able to be quite nimble today of course that you can pull stuff right out of a spreadsheet right into we use PowerPoint. There are other manufacturers. But I think that what you've said has always been part of Eagles is that, you know, we make procrastination an art form. <laughs> and so we've always been some that have been doing their talks to the very, very last but minute But to be
1: clear, you wouldn't be hand-making your slides in a sink the night before Eagles. Of course.
0: Of course. So you young whippersnappers out there listening back to this, um, I, I want to talk about the effect that Eagles has on the population in EMS land. And thats I've been in the US now for 13 years. I've probably been to seven Eagles since I've been here. My badges of honour are the notebooks that you guys give out, because not only do I get a free notebook, I fill it as I sit there and listen for the two days. And of course, some of that stuff every year goes back into the organisation, becomes protocol, practice, procedure, clinical activity. And that's the real strength here. And it is said And actually, Dr. Pepe wants to get a bumper sticker made that says, you know, you heard it here first. And I think that's the
2: real power of this forum. Yeah, but I want to hear more about you actually wrote down stuff by hand in a notebook. (laughs) Really? You had a pen and that sort of thing?
0: Back in the days of yore, I did, and now I'm going to have RSI in my thumbs oh. because I'm putting my tweet. But I think the point being is that the takeaways here are immense, and actually the effect that having all of the metropolitan medical directors, plus, of course, we've got in, we've got Mick Malloy in from Ireland, we've got Marcus Ong in from, from Singapore. Just today, the effect of that experience is having a profound effect on the practice of clinical EMS in the House of
2: Medicine on the truck. Well, there's no question. Just look at what we talked about this morning, which is, I'm an old guy. I'll be 69 this year. I know I look like a teenager, but I was around practicing medicine in my hometown when slender fellows came in very cyanotic covered with sores and they died. And we had no idea what it was. Several years later, there was an HTLV3 related virus, but it wasn't known to be causative. Then Dr. Fauci, the same Fauci named it HIV. And we began to understand as It was in the blood supply, you know, prominent people in the world died on front pages of the New York Times and so on, that this was a horrible epidemic that is still going on for which there is not a vaccine. It was years before AZT showed up and then uh, many years after that, before the protease inhibitor showed up, that, in fact, you could live a normal life with HIV. And so here we are now in about, uh, what, 16 months, 17 months into the worst worldwide pandemic on an acute scale. Remember that the AIDS epidemic has been horrible. There have been nearly 40 million people worldwide that's died, that's over 40 years. The COVID outbreak has killed roughly around three million worldwide as compared to the great influenza of 1918, which killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million. It's, the COVID outbreak still ranks on a scale of the major epidemics of recorded history. And so this morning, we've talked then about what happened in New York City, where on an average day, they see 4,000 runs a day and their runs went up to 7,000 a day. Their cardiac arrests tripled and quadrupled.
1: There were medics who pronounced 13, 14 people dead in in a shift or two.
2: Yes. And so... What does sharing this type of information and, oh, and then in a parallel way, presenting the terrible stress that our medics in the field and the fire personnel and other responders are having when they're having so many dead and dying? When they're having to approach patients with uh, PPE that they were lucky to get, talk about the scandalous issue about the fact we couldn't even get PPE in this nation. What was that about? And the answer, of course, is has to do with manufacturing and production chains, which we just don't think about, but those are very real parts. But then the effects on the psychology of our providers has been awful.
1: Ray, you was, know, that, was it, that a topic, psychology of EMS. So, uh, providers uh, twenty two yeah.
2: years ago was it a top even no it was a suck it up and go you know uh, what can, what you know you 're a tough kind of guy you know we're we were products of i 'm a baby boomer, which is a product of the uh, what they call the great generation and so forth, which is the fact that you know this uh, this personal insight into yourself is fluff, get out, do your job, and don 't whine as opposed to today that I think that we 're far more in touch with the human psyche, that people have a right to feel non-discriminated against, that there are not disparities for race and ethnicity, that we have to approach all people as opportunities for learning, uh, as fully engaging in fields that they can find both helpful to others and enlightening to themselves. And we have the capability of doing that. But just think of the topics we've covered in the last five minutes. We've skirted the realm of, of the human population And this is what this era is about, and this is how Eagles is different now because we have identified so many important areas from the actual clinical practice of whether I should be using multiple doses of epinephrine, the research projects that have continued along the way. We participated in the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, for example, and the multiple trials that we've had to look at various dogmas. When I was a newbie, you know, 45 years ago in emergency medicine, the thought was we jam an ET tube into everybody that would take one. And if a little ventilation is good, a lot of ventilation is better. And we actually thought in the old days, in the 70s, when I was in training, that you could not give enough IV fluids, crystalloid, in the setting of trauma to dilute coagulation factors. It seems like we were ignorant in those days with today's reflection, but the answer is we weren't ignorant at all. That's what the science was. Today, we know, of course, that that's not true. And yet there's still, what are our opportunities? You know, many protocols, ours included, is going after blood pressure first rather than the concerns for diluting coagulation factors that in the setting of hemorrhage and trauma. And I guess the one last thing, and I would leave it with this, what, what Paul Pepe has been able to do here is bring together some really intellectual, committed people who have ideas that seem to have merit, namely heads-up CPR, for example. You say, well, what's that got to do with anything? In the 70s, we would get on the chest. This was a mere 15 years after Saffer, Jude, Cowanhoven Hoven, and Neckerbacher first described on 1230 in the afternoon on September the 16th of 1960 to the Maryland Medical and Chirurgical Society the fact that they had discovered something about airway and about artificial ventilation and about chest compression and about defibrillation, and they didn't even have a name for it yet. Today, we, we of course call that cardiopulmonary resuscitation and everyone in the world should be trained on something that in the sixties would have been really just medical personnel today we have these opportunities to explore topics like heads up cpr So in the 70s, we would get on the chest, push hard. If pushing was good, pushing faster was better. If a little air was good, ventilating as fast or faster must have been better. We know that that's lousy physiology today. Why? Because of the advance of information, the advance of physiological knowledge. And so we also know that you have somebody flat there in cardiac arrest, you press on the chest. Not only does a pulse of pressure go forward into the arterial system, both in the body but in the head but a reverse pulse up the veins goes up into the head, resulting in increased intracranial pressure. And that probably has a lot to do, and especially according to very smart people who are much smarter than me, like Keith Lurie out of Minnesota, who says that that appears to be why we get the bodies back, but not the brains. That maybe we should be draining the head during CPR. How to do that uh, is to get their heads up slightly. And so this is a coming prospect. We had our talk a couple of days ago and then uh, on Zoom An hour later, I ran the Mission Lifeline meeting for the American Heart Association and in my North Texas region by Zoom. And I said, folks, you know, we're the acute coronary syndrome network. And one hour ago, we had the guys who know this physiology come in and present this. We have to think about this. They also presented about resuscitation centers regular receiving hospitals or primary cardiac arrest resuscitation centers or comprehensive cardiac arrest resuscitation centers that would include the capability for LVAD and ECMO.
1: The same way we have trauma centers, the same way we have a STEMI center, the same way we have stroke centers. Yeah.
0: Let's uh, talk about COVID, talk about education and talk about technology. Of course, one of the things that COVID made us pivot into is an online presence with our communication and obviously with our education and and actually the guys here at Prodigy, with the help of many eagles, including Pepe and Tavi, and the list could go on, helped us produce Refresh 2021, which we've educated 25,000 EMTs for free for their national uh, NCCRCE, which is a great thing. But of course, we can do a lot more, or do you think we can do a lot more online than we could do in person?
1: And Ray, talk about what happened last year because the Eagles were aching to get together and Paul made it happen along with Julian Maldonado and Craig Manifold's vision. We met twice a week initially, and then once a week. And we had infectious disease docs like Michael Osterholm on, and we got Amal Matu to do all of his great EKG stuff, and we were gathering every week.
2: Every single week. I think we've gathered over 60 times in the last calendar year. This gathering meaning that Paul Pepe calls together the Eagles at 1030 Central Time every single Tuesday morning. What did Roger Kipling say? To fill each waking moment with 60 seconds a minute to run, I think that what we've seen in this virtual era due to COVID is the fact that we can absolutely pack our days. I have 15 hour Zoom days now. Is it? Beneficial. I'm on the admissions committee of the medical school at UT Southwestern. I have been for 10 years. One of the things we score kids for admission on is whether they've had shadowing time with clinicians. Well, they couldn't do that last year. They, there was zero shadowing time available. So a bunch of us got together and formed virtualshadowing.com. And we meet every Tuesday evenings, and we've now had 55 lectures online, two hours each. We put online about 110 hours of shadowing time. This is live. We have Zoom for 1,000. We've had as many as 1,600 kids live online with someone who is a guru in their field who has really good communication skills. And we are in 36 nations, over 1,000 universities. We've had over 42,000 kids sign up. This would never have happened in person, never, never couldn't possibly happen. I mean, because they're all around the world. I'm talking to these kids like this is kids who are doing shadowing time with the thought of applying to medical school, PA school and P school. And I started off the talks with, are you crazy? Do you want to go to medical school? Have you lost your mind? You want to be a weirdo? But, um, we've been able to cover enormous topics all the way from, you know, the the evaluation of the sick patient to physician finance to the nursing practitioner career to a PA who works for an infectious disease team and those sorts of things. This is what I think about the virtual world. I think that Zoom is and Zoom-like platforms are not going to go away, number one. Number two is I think that There are questionable learning moments at times of in-person anyway. People are on their phones. They're distracted. They're not listening. They may or may not have access to the materials that are being presented, which, as we all know, repetition is the height of retention. And thus, let's say that they do get the materials. Well, that becomes virtual. I would just sort of leave this remark with I just finished a wonderful book, um, uh, uh, audibly, of course, because it's harder for me to sit down and read a book. Uh, we had this thing called CDs. Do you remember those? I do.
1: I do those round yeah. things with yeah. a hole in the center. I thing. had I had mine in my um, uh, when I was jogging. Yeah. Yes, and, and before
2: uh, that, Hillary, we had LPs.
0: Yes, but you, would you
1: stop pretending. You had, you had LPs
0: while you were jogging. That's really cool. Uh, yes, I did. Yeah,
2: that, didn't that needle come out of the groove? I remember when I first interviewed you, Ray. It was on an eight-track. <laughs> uh, I still have my eight-track player from the early seventies when I was at Georgia. That's going on? I on. haven't turned it on. It hasn't been plugged in. There. We're not editing so. this out, by the way. Yeah, the exactly. <laughs> So the book is Make It Stick, a wonderful book, and I'm, I'm struggling with the name of the author. It was multiple authors. Um, the long and the short of it is this couple of facts, and I'll shut up. What is clear about the effect of education is that someone is able to understand it, to be able to retain it, and to be able to integrate it, or the, the real sexy term is interleave. An example of that is this, let's say that you wanna be able to hit fastballs in baseball, so you have a couple of options. You can get up at practice, And you can get your bat and you can have a pitcher there who throws you nothing but fastballs. And at the end of an hour of doing it, you're hitting fastballs pretty well. On the other hand, you have a pitcher get up and she throws you sinkers and sliders and curves and puts in the occasional fastball and you realize you have all these challenges. And after an hour, you're not hitting fastballs really all that much better down the road, which made you a better batter. And by far, it is those that hit both sliders and curves and fastballs. And this is called interleaving. I realized after 23 years of clinical practice in the burbs of my home of Atlanta, Georgia, that I thought I knew a lot about fluid and electrolytes. And then I came to Parkland 20 years ago this month at UT Southwestern. And now a generation later, 20 years later, I realized that the fact that I didn't know a lot of, as much as I thought I knew about fluid and electrolytes, and that's because we have so many patients, so many chronic wrinkles, so many diabetics and ketoacidosis, so many uh, hyponatremics, uh, so many people on so many different medications that I've had so many thousands and thousands of patients with complex fluid and electrolyte problems that I've then had to read about, study about, and weave into my practice And now I understand it a lot better. This term is called interleaving. It is one of the highest forms of education. And I think that that, and I will shut up with this, I I think that virtual learning, the test of it will be whether that we can successfully interleave education into the practices of our providers. If we do that, we will be successful.
0: Well said. Now, I got all of that apart from the baseball references. So allow me to translate that into cricket for people listening around the rest of the world. What Dr. Fowler just said was it gives you the ability to bat away a googly from a spin bowler. There we are. After having kidney pie for breakfast. He said googly. Yes, it's a type of bowl. Uh, It's a spinning bowl. I think you made that up. I didn't. Okay, Okay, if you're listening in and you're from the Commonwealth and you play cricket, tell me I'm right.
1: Right. You're speaking my language as a former... English teacher before I became a paramedic and current educator in the School of Education at American University. We talk education theory all the time, and what you just said is something that everyone needs to hear, especially in this age of Zoom and learning online and being able to bring to your students the best pedagogical practices there are.
2: There's no question. I guess I would We've gone a long time already. I can keep talking, but I, we are creating a new program called Advanced Mental Health Life Support. Now, the world needs another card-core slideshow with a certification card like it needs a tooth filled without Novocaine. But it is clear: the great physicist Richard Feynman said-he was one of those who created the bomb, and one of the great speakers in the history of the world. I would encourage you to look up Feynman, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N's lectures on physics. Great speaker with a joy accent. And he said this, he said, if you really want to understand something, explain it to an eight-year-old, which means you really understand it and you understand it on a very basic level. There are essential elements. What we're targeting is law enforcement, medics, other field providers, and And people. There are reasons why you don't put someone prone and put a knee in their back. And it has to do with respiratory physiology, which is if all the listeners right now will take a deep breath and breathe all the way out, you have just moved five liters of air. Half of that was moved by your diaphragm, which on exhaling completely, the diaphragm is way up at the nipple line. On inhaling completely, the diaphragm is moved down to the lower rib margin, but also the ribs move outward in a bucket handle kind of fashion. Now, why does that matter? Because the diaphragm moves about half of the air and the ribs move about half of the air and both have to work. We all sleep prone. We breathe okay, sleeping prone. But if you put somebody prone and put a knee in their back, you cease rib motion. The bucket handles no longer move, which cuts your minute ventilation. That five liters, you just moved in half. What is the effect? Within 10 minutes, your oxygen levels plummet. You get diffuse ischemia, which means damage to all the tissues, and a metabolic acidosis occurs, and carbon dioxide levels go up which causes a respiratory acidosis, which is dangerous to tissues, and CO2 narcosis, which means you pass out. And so don't do it. So we need to take this kind of thing and explain it to people on just a very fundamental level as if you're explaining it to someone who, on a very basic level so we can get this word out. We have a partnership with law enforcement, with field providers, with citizens that we cherish, we don't threaten. I will give you one last point, point. I will shut up. But, but actually,
0: you've got a pilot course coming up, I think right. I heard yesterday. July
2: the 19th at 1 yeah. o'clock in the afternoon central. I'm not selling anything. It's a freebie. We're going to do a pilot course. I have a Zoom account for 1,000, and I, I would love to. My, my co-faculty want to do a pilot course and just have 30 people listening and rip it to shreds. One very last quick point. One of the things we're going to cover is that there is a crisis in chemical sedation in the field right now. There are legislators that have moved to even eliminate the use of ketamine in the field. What is the problem? Very quickly, if you come in the hospital to have your gallbladder out, there's got to be an anesthesiologist who is well-trained, who can handle all emergencies, present with a patient on pulse ox, capno monitor, a vital signs documenting Q5. This patient is being monitored very closely. If we're going to put somebody to sleep with ketamine in the field, which is what dissociative doses do, we can do no less. We have to be present with suction, with a monitor, with pulse ox, with capno, leaving the patients never unattended so that we can optimize both the safety in the field and the patient outcome.
1: And so that advanced mental health life support is meant to help field providers with the best practices for taking care of our behavioral health emergencies. Explained
2: in a non-complicated, very fundamental way. We've done this with many things, the algorithms of care for the management of cardiac arrest. I've been teaching ACLS for 41 years, and we've watched the algorithms of care change with the passing of time. And the algorithms are there at all because some pretty high-pressure people, high-functioning high folks have gotten together and said, we we agree that these are the algorithms that we think shock, 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 epinephrine, bicarb." Shock, you know that should be in um, place. We believe that there probably are some algorithms of care that should go into the management of patients in the field.
1: Great. We look forward to seeing that course.
0: We do, and we'll put the notes of where you can see it or indeed when you can watch it back in the show notes. We're about on time now, but hey, before you go, just take a second to, on whatever platform you're listening on, to rate the podcast that you're listening to now in order to help us climb up the charts and so more people can take advantage of the EMS educator. Dr. Ray Fowler, thank you so much. This has been so informative. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Ray. Here's a message from our show sponsor, which is EMS Gives Life.
3: Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the executive director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gifts Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor, and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver, saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you will go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you.